don't know how you feel leading up to Christmas, but for me, everything points to Christmas Day. I still remember Christmas as something uh, that was massive when I was a child. And when I say child, I mean like throughout high school, but also in primary school as well. I just love the idea of waking up and knowing that it was Christmas Day. Uh, And you don't have to have kids uh, to know that it is absolutely textbook Christmas when your child runs into your room at 4 a.m. in the morning. That's exactly what I'd do. Run into my parents' room. I'd wake up my sisters quietly. I very softly just whisper into their ear. No, I wouldn't do that at all. I'd yell. I'd say, Casey, Rihanna, straight to mom and dad. We got to get in there. We'd jump in. We'd get up on like the A-frame of the bed and stand up above them and like Akadaka stage dive on top of them. And mom would roll over and she's like, Riley, I'm tired. And I'm like, mom, what good reason do you have to be tired? I mean, Santa's been doing all the work tonight. Like, why could you possibly be tired? Uh, But it's this idea of Christmas Day. There's a certain energy to all of it. Christmas Day from when you wake up to when you fall asleep. It's just overwhelming, but it's so exciting. And that's the kind of the Christmas of my past, and it's this feeling that I try and get back every year. And I don't know uh, if this year this is one of these Christmases where you're not quite feeling the Christmas spirit yet, where you're trying to get that Christmas cheer back, because there's a lot of quick fix solutions that we can take just to start to feel like it's finally Christmas again. You start burning more petrol money on looking at Christmas lights just so you can feel like it's Christmas again. You expose yourself to more Michael Bublé. Your earphones just get glued into your ears just to listen to all the Christmas tunes. Uh, you re-watch movies like Love Actually, which is going to be replayed on, on Channel 7, Channel 9, Channel 10, Channel Go. Over the next four weeks, you'll see it so many times. You've watched movies like Elf, like The Grinch for the 204th time with your kids just to feel Christmassy again. Uh, I've actually found a new joy this Christmas and a new way of actually experiencing Christmas, a bit of a new lens and perspective. And that's actually going down and just driving to Westfield North Lakes after trying to score a park after like three hours. And all you do, you just walk into like a Myers, you walk into a Best and Less, a Kmart, and you just watch the difference between the shoppers, uh, the husband and wives shoppers. Because uh, I see the wives, they're going through, it's like there's this algorithm in their head in terms of what they know people need. Uh, it's like the jeans, uh, the shoes, the belts that will go great for this Arnie. All right, we got the gift vouchers over here, the tool belt, all the rest going to the uncles over here. It's just this perfect algorithm that they're working in their head. And then the husbands, the husbands, you're just looking, and you see them just walking around Myers, just looking for any space that they can sit on. They're literally moving and pushing clothes off chairs just so they can find a spot just to sit and relax. This is my new perspective I'm finding on Christmas now because I bet. I bet there is someone in North Lakes right now that is just hiding in a dressing room somewhere, a husband who's just looking at himself in the mirror going, what have I got myself into while Mariah Carey, all I want for Christmas is just blasting. Uh, it's, it's this funny thing. Christmas is this funny thing as it all leads up to Christmas Day. And one last thing that I have learned as well is that the most overwhelming position that you can put yourself in leading up to Christmas Day is the last second gift wrap. Uh, Because if you're wrapping on Christmas Day, you will know the two things that you will not find. You will not find scissors in the place where you know there should be scissors. And you will not find any sticky tape in your house every time. I don't know if this is just something that happens in my household, but we know where the scissors are. It's literally like every day leading up to the 25th, the scissors are in the second drawer in our kitchen. But every time I go leading up to Christmas to actually wrap a gift, it's like the scissors have jumped up and they've legged it back to office works. They're not in the house anymore. And the worst thing about the sticky tape is by the time you start unrolling it, like you can't even find the little sticky end where the sticky tape's meant to come off and it just becomes this massive ordeal, this massive drama and you don't know what to do. But uh, I'm, I feel even more unfortunate because I'm one of those people that when it comes to cutting like the Christmas paper, 
the gift wrapping paper. I don't have that special gift whether you can like glide with the paper. I don't know if you're getting me here, where you can like glide with your scissors and it cuts straight through. It's this special gift. It must just not be in my gene pool. Uh, but it all kind of leads up to this Christmas day, this idea of giving gifts, of giving. Uh, and it's massive and it's exciting. Uh, and even though there might be times where you find yourself uh, in a pit of stress trying to figure out which mode of Christmas tree lights will fit best that won't trigger you uh, to have any uh, crazy kind of flashing sequences uh, <laughs> that will even scare your dog or even the frustration of yet again misplacing the, the small pair of nail clippers that you got out of the bonbon by versing grandma over Christmas dinner. Behind everything, behind the suspense, behind the tension, behind the build-up, it all leads to Christmas Day. It all leads up to this day that we celebrate this giant story. And our world during the Christmas season, they can very quickly lead us to a place of either loving December or dreading it. So much so that sometimes we can actually completely miss entirely why we're celebrating it in the first place. Uh, to be with family, to eat an assortment of, of meat sweets until we uh, have to zip our pants up to, to receive a cheap secret Santa gift from an auntie or an uncle or just to devour grandma's annual pavlova that she brings to the table. But then somewhere in the midst of these things is this Christmas story. This Christmas story that we see in people's houses as decorations in the nativity scene. With this story we see acted out in carols, and these carols that we see on TV. This story of a Virgin Mary and an average Joe, this story that was written, Joseph and a heavily pregnant Mary who traveled from town to town to get to Bethlehem on donkey back, which clearly must have been the Jeep of its time. I mean, what could be more suitable than carrying a pregnant woman on a donkey to get to Bethlehem? Also, Joseph could register under this census set by this son of a deity, this guy called Caesar Augustus, the son of a god, that then got this message from an angel that they were to give birth to the son of God. And like, firstly, that's no ordinary message in itself. I feel like when we hear angels tied into biblical stories, it's just like, oh, back in Jesus' time, angels just must have been everywhere. But like, angel in a story in itself is just weird. And an angel coming to tell someone that they're going to have the son of God even stranger, I'd just freak out. Actually, I'd just freak out as a 19-year-old male having a child. But I just it's bizarre. It's a bizarre story in itself. This Christmas story is odd. And you may know the story's conclusion comes with the fact that Joe didn't book ahead, that there was no vacancy, there was no place of birth, but only this dark and cold spot where really, without an epidural, it would have been far from a silent night. But then, then a child born under a bright star, a saviour and king for all. And so it is told, and so it is celebrated every year across the globe. And to set the scene for you, to set the scene for you as to where we're at in this Once Upon a Time series. And we said last week that it's easy to look at the Christmas story and think of it as this fairy tale, as this perfect Disney Pixar animated movie. Ah, but there's more to it. And last week we looked at this idea that the Christmas story that is told every year in over 2,000 languages what if this story that never actually started with the once upon a time intro but instead was in a great uh, story that was detailed and documented and recorded with the names of historical figures that we'd find in textbooks places you can visit even up until today what if christmas isn't just a story but what if christmas is history and this is our bottom line last week that christmas is history that regardless of whether you see yourself as a follower of jesus or not jesus's birth actually happened over two thousand years ago regardless of whether you believe in god or not 
So what does that mean for us? Well, well, if it did happen, if Christmas is history, then no one can say that they don't believe in the Christmas story or not. Sure, you can be impartial uh, about whether or not there is a God, but when it comes to the birth of Jesus, when it comes to the birth of the Son of God, this God that came down in human flesh, this nativity story, you can't be impartial. There's no middle ground. You can't be sitting on the fence. It's either true or it's not. It's either real or it's not real. You have to choose to accept or reject it. You simply can't pretend. If Christmas is history, then you simply can't be neutral. You can't be Switzerland when it comes to Christmas. Nobody can be neutral when it comes to Christmas. And in this Christmas story that we read about, as written and told by a disciple of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus by the name of Matthew, uh, we find out a man in this story uh, who sometimes we do hear about when it comes to the Christmas story, but often this guy kind of gets pushed to the side because he brings kind of an ugly twist to our, uh, to our nativity story, our Christmas story. But in Matthew's account in the New Testament, we read about a man, in fact, a king, who also wrestled with the birth of Jesus and what it meant for him. And his name was King Herod. And to give you some background information about Herod, Herod clawed his way to the top uh, to get to the top and be reigning over people by taking advantage of political unrest in Rome. And during this time, during this time of King Herod's reign, when he first kind of kicked off and launched, he won the favor of a fella named Octavian, who last week we discussed Octavian became the emperor that we read about in our history textbooks as a fella named Augustus Caesar, the nephew and the adopted son of Julius Caesar. And that's right, the guy that invented the salad. So Herod became, Herod became great king of all four districts, uh, the north, the south, the east, and the west of Israel. He was the king of the land of the Jews. And the thing for Herod is that he wasn't completely Jewish. In fact, his mother was actually an Arab sheik. But he had, uh, had, to fo- he had focused all his efforts on winning the favor of the Jewish people in the Roman Empire, also that he would have security over his reign as king. So Herod became like a proper suck-up. He became a proper teacher's pet. He constantly sent gifts to other royalties uh, to create alliances. He began to rebuild and restore the Jerusalem temple to win over the Jews. He even built a a port uh, in a place called Caesarea after that of Caesar Augustus. And to also add to Herod's biography, he was a paranoid tyrant who ended up killing three of his sons on suspicion of treason. He put to death his favorite wife out of ten. Uh, He killed one of his mothers in law He even drowned a high priest, and he killed several of his uncles and a couple of cousins. Uh, So Herod was a he was an odd guy, but King Herod, King Herod demanded control. Coins became minted in his name. So you have top dog Herod feeling pretty good as king. He's put in some hard yards to have jurisdiction over his kingdom, and he demanded the allegiance of his people. And at this time in history, when King Herod was around, Herod had just got everything in order. Finally, he had got power. Finally, Herod had authority. Finally, Herod had complete control and to give you some context to give you some context this is how herod king herod played a role in the christmas story the main fact of the christmas story that we're exploring this birthday event that started christmas like we said it didn't leave herod feeling neutral and we find this in matthew's writing so let's read a little bit of matthew's account and you might notice the christmas story coming into play and how king herod got involved because this is what Matt writes, he says, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, 
during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? Uh, And the Magi, just to give you an idea, uh, the Magi are these philosophers, these astronomers and these astrologers, also known as wise men. Uh, In fact, you'll notice in Matt's account that he never says that there was actually three of them. Uh, But they came from the east, came from the east to head to Jerusalem and chase this bright star, which is pretty stereotypical male, shiny thing, let's go that way. Uh, So they are heading that way because they want to hear and find out this good news, this baby that was to be born and fulfill a prophecy that was actually connected to the Jewish people, to rewrite the the story of history. That's what this baby was meant to do, a savior who was promised by God to ancient Israel as written in the Old Testament, a baby to be born as the king of the Jews in Bethlehem. And all of a sudden, the Christmas story meant something to King Herod. Because when Herod heard this, when Herod heard this, he was deeply disturbed and all of Jerusalem with him. You see, Herod's response wasn't, uh, response wasn't, oh, you know, fellas, this is just an old myth. This is just an old legend of the Jewish people. And I'm not even really Jewish. Like, I can kind of shake this thing off. This isn't too much of a stress. I'm not too phased. But best of luck, wise men, chasing your baby king of your kingdom. But Herod took a different approach. He said, my goodness, this is what these Jewish prophets had said was going to happen. If this is real, if this uh, is actually going to happen, my life of ruling, my life of having authority and complete control will be over. I won't be in control. I will lose everything. See, Herod couldn't be neutral when it came to Jesus. It was either Jesus is the real king or he isn't. It was either true or it wasn't true. That's why we see Herod was deeply disturbed. And he was disturbed because this meant that he wasn't the rightful heir to the throne. And the Jews that he, the Jews that he had spent so much try, uh, time trying to win over would push back against him more. And the second thing was that someone could overthrow Herod here. He's thinking if the Jews see Jesus as their rightful king, they could unite around this religious figure. They could revolt against me. And all of Jerusalem was disturbed, Matthew writes as well. And they were disturbed with him because if these wise men were right, if they truly believed they had found the king, then it could swing the balance of power completely away from Rome. And this would have made Jerusalem very easy for the prey of other nations. You see, in Herod's mind, as much as he, wished he, uh, he could have wished to have pushed back against everything, he felt he simply could not afford to be neutral. So Herod kind of takes this, this three-step approach. And the first thing he does is this, to try and regain control after hearing about the news of Jesus. The first thing Herod did was he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the Lord. And he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. He brought in all the guys that knew their stuff, the chief priests. They knew their stuff about Jewish law and prophecy. And he brought them in and he said, fellas, fellas, what do you know? What does the textbook say? What does the writing say? What does the law say? Where is this baby meant to be born? And they gave him an answer straight away. They said, in Bethlehem, in Bethlehem, in Judea. And the chief priest, after talking with Herod, Herod steps away and he goes, in Bethlehem. Sweet. This is great. So he tells the chief priest to move out of the room. And then very secretly and very sly, Herod called back in the wise men. Matthew writes, Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time that the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem. And he said, uh, he said to them, uh, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, 
As soon as you find him in Bethlehem, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. And maybe you're thinking, oh, well, this is nice. Maybe Herod's, you know, the tides are kind of turning for him. Maybe he's going to get off his high horse. But if you know this part of the Christmas story, you know the wise men, they never come back to Herod. Uh, They get a heads up. They get a warning. And these wise men, they aren't neutral about Jesus' birth either. That's why they trekked for so long in the first place to find him. And Herod becomes such a believer of the possibility that Jesus, being who he was said to have been, this baby, that he retaliates with absolute oppression, but also a fear of this son of God, of this king of the Jews being born into the world. And we see Herod's true intentions and just how unneutral he was in the third step of his plan. Because when Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. He gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and in its vicinity who were two years old and under. There's a fun fact for you. Christmas story that you and I know literally takes place in the middle of a war zone where a tyrant is wiping out villages of baby boys. But that would never fit the nativity story that we tell at Christmas carols today. But why did Herod do it? Why did Herod do this? Because Herod felt like he had something to lose. Herod felt like he had something to lose he had nothing to gain he was so unneutral so unneutral about what was happening to him he was so on the far right side of things and he was so freaked out that he felt like he had nothing to gain if this was all true but he had everything to lose and Herod loved power he loved power more than anything else he loved the idea of being in control of what was happening across his kingdom and what would happen to it in the future but it all pointed back to him And any suspicion that anyone could deprive him of his throne drew an immediate reaction from him. They must die. And instead of using his power to serve and protect people, Herod uses his power to kill his people to actually help him protect his power. His fear of losing his power, his reign as king, this fear of losing absolute control, it drove him to mass murder. He refused to be outranked. He was ruthlessly trying to regain control of his kingdom by killing children, by killing babies or because he feared the possibility this question of what if what if it was all real what if the claims are true what if i have no right to be in charge and so herod took things to an extreme level he said what's so threatening about a baby it was this claim it was this claim that he would be king that he was the god who had rid himself into the story into history as man herod felt like he had everything to lose which was very different to that of the wise men. See, the wise men were different. The wise men trekked for so long. They followed this star for so long because they had everything to gain and felt like they had nothing to lose. They were saying, if this is true, and if we were to believe that it is true, then we have everything to gain from it. So where do you sit? Where do you sit when it comes to this Christmas story? Because I find it interesting, if we simply can't be neutral when it comes to Christmas, then we're either pushing away from the Christmas story or we're pulling ourselves towards it. And I find it interesting. There's a a fellow by the name of Thomas Nagel, a guy who's actually an American professor of philosophy and law, a a very uh, smart, very intelligent man, a real intellect, but also comes with an atheist view. But he has this very interesting quote, uh, this very interesting citation that he has written about the fear of religion itself and actually this fear of God because Thomas Nagel is not neutral when it comes to God. So I want to give you a short snippet of it 
uh, on the screen, but I'll read along for you the full quote. Because this is what Thomas Nagel has to say when it comes to this fear of God itself. He says, I'm talking about the fear of religion. I'm speaking from experience, being strongly subject to this fear myself. I want atheism to be true. And I'm made uneasy by the fact that for some of us, uh, by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't just that I don't believe in God, and naturally I hope my belief is right. I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. My guess is that this cosmic authority problem is not rare. You see, when it comes to Christianity, when it comes to being a follower of Jesus, when it comes to this idea of Jesus and God, Thomas Nagel had the courage to say what a lot of people often feel. And I can understand that maybe for you as someone who isn't a massive fan of church, and maybe for those of you that might not, might not necessarily see yourself as a Christian, or those that we know in our life that aren't followers of Jesus, they might have a lot of pushbacks against the heart of the Christmas stories because of the small details and the big details that are interwoven within it. So instead of asking you what you push back against when it comes to the Christmas story and why you push back against it, I want to ask all of us today this question, that we can all answer as followers of Jesus or, or those of you who would say they still have questions or those who would say who aren't. And the question is this. The question is, what are you afraid you will lose by following Jesus? When it comes to the Christmas story, do you push towards the Christmas story as historical truth or do you push away from it? Because you have to be going one way or the other. Because when it comes to the Christmas story nobody can be neutral when it comes to christmas nobody can be neutral when it comes to jesus and i can understand either as even as a follower of jesus when it comes to this idea of what we could potentially lose by following jesus we can say there's nothing we can say all our control is placed in him it's all given to him but yet there's still times there's still times when we hold on to these things that we say is small problems that we can fix for ourselves but at the end of the day we know that there is a god that is so much bigger that we need to pass his burdens onto just as we all have a tendency to fall into our annual christmas routine these patterns that we do every year just as we all have a tendency to see the christmas story as simply a once upon a time story we can have a tendency to turn to jesus turn jesus into who we want him to be but you can't really know jesus until you see him for who he truly is and when we acknowledge that the christmas story doesn't leave us neutral it gives us incredible freedom to begin to explore the underlying reasons why, why people and why we resist Jesus in the first place. Because this is the Son of God. The Son of God who, who didn't even come down to take the throne. Uh, he came down and he didn't demand allegiance. When we think king, we think of someone that we serve. But this is a God that actually came down to serve. A king that came down to serve all. And he said in the midst of a relationship with him, he said that it's all your choice. Jesus came down, he wrote himself into history, and he said, you know what, I won't take the throne, but I'll take the manger. I'll take Bethlehem. I'll grow up in Nazareth because everyone knows that nothing good comes from Nazareth. I'll bear every insecurity, every hurt, every heartache, every frustration, everything that this world has broken. I will carry on my shoulders the regret of your past mistakes, the guilt of broken relationships, the resentment that you feel of your family upbringing. I will take the anger that you have felt the frustration i'll bear all the repercussions of the errors that you continue to make i'll embrace the negative self-talk cycle that you put yourself in and i'll feel 
the fears of not being good enough, of being lonely, anxious, worried, depressed, irrelevant, and useless, your fears of the future, and I'll take it all upon myself, and I will take it upon the cross. Because if this Christmas story is more than a once-upon-a-time story, if this Christmas story is history, for unto us a Savior is born, a Savior who wrote his way into history, not with swords of judgment, but with nails in his hands. When you explore your underlying reasons for resisting something, you learn more about yourself, more than you could uh, ever do before by ignoring those reasons. So I want to challenge you, leading up to this Christmas, to actually take the time to, to sit, whether that's for five minutes, whether it's for five seconds, and just think, if it's true, if God does exist, if my relationship with him actually meant so much that he was going to bear all these things on his back for me, then what does that mean for me? And what type of life can I live? Because nobody can be neutral when it comes to Jesus. I challenge you to ask yourself that four Monday question. What could I possibly lose? Then do an absolutely crazy thing. Come back next week for part three as we wrap up this series together and wrap up our last Sunday together this year at Beyond as well. And actually look and explore this idea of what we can do with this Christmas story and what it actually means for you and why it had to happen for you to live a life of eternal, of eternal hope and eternal joy. Because when you discover why you push back against something or someone, you discover more about yourself. And in doing so, you could possibly discover the hope of the world and live a life, a completely new life for you. I'd love to pray for you uh, this morning. As we do that, I'd love to invite the band back up as well. But let's pray. Because uh, God, we thank you that as we step uh, into this Christmas season, God, as we uh, are now full uh, full away into December, uh, we thank you for what's ahead. We thank you for the celebration that we'll be able to spend with our family, for all the meat sweets and all the cooked up goods, the baked goods in itself, God. But we thank you at the same time uh, that you've blessed us with people in our life that we can fall back on. God, we know leading to the Christmas season, it can be a funny time for a lot of us. A lot of us, uh, it can bring up bad memories. Uh, it can bring up things of remorse and regret as well. God, we thank you that you wrote yourself into history so you could actually bear these things that we feel and that we think that you could actually take on our sin, Father, and that you actually took it to the cross. That God, there was a time in history where we pushed so far back against you that we just said we didn't want to have a bar of it, but God, you wrote yourself into history. You said that you were a king that wasn't going to sit up on a throne and act as a puppeteer. That you're not a dictator, you're not a God who desires control over all his people, but a God who asks of us simply to have self-control. A God who wrote his way into history, wrote his way into our story as man, who came as a baby born in a manger in Bethlehem to serve all, to seek relationship for all. God, we pray leading up to Christmas that we can reflect on that and we can look at this idea that Christmas is more than just a story. If it is indeed history, then what does that mean for us? Because this is a life where we don't have to live constantly in fear of our own control. God, a life where we can pass our burdens of the fear of losing control over to you. So God, we lift up all these burdens and give them to you. And God, we thank you for the Christmas story. And we thank you for the miracle that came through you. We pray these things in your name. Amen.